0: Disorienting to you, something seems off. Am I right? We live in a, a, a culture uh, that is very much a go with the flow culture. It's a very much a way uh, of getting us all on board, all in the same things. We are living in a culture of ubiquity, where we uh, generally uh, do the same things, drive the same cars, use the same phone, um, read the same newspaper. It, it's it's all um, coalescing in sameness, and yet we follow uh, a savior, we serve a God who actually challenged us into a counter-cultural narrative. God has has birthed us into this world in order for us to live counter to the culture that we are in. Uh, Barna is a major researcher, a Christian researcher. They do all this research every year and publish uh, bits of it. You can buy the rest, but what they would tell you is that 71% of Americans identify as Christian. 71% of Americans identify as Christian. 60% of those people, so a majority of people who identify as as Christians, would also say that they are, quote, non-practicing Christians, which is to say, we're now at a minority number of people, even of that 70%, that would say, I even have any Christian practice in my life. And so when we say, hey, are you a Christian? Most people in America say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And when the second, even the second question gets answered, well, what do you do to practice that? most say nothing. Among those who do say they are practicing Christians, Barna would uh, give us further details, and their stats would say that not only are um, practicing Christians suffering uh, all the same ills as non-practicing, we have the same addictions, the same divorce rate, the same practicing Christians actually look exactly like culturally atheists. And so we have to take stock of that as, as uh, believers and say, what is it that we do, and how do we live Who are we really when it comes to this life we claim? And so for the next three weeks, what we're doing is taking aim at kind of three countercultural lanes, I guess you could say. Three ways the culture has swept us away and perhaps three ways to uh, restore the countercultural beauty of our faith. These are sort of disciplines for surviving uh, suburbia, disciplines for daily living. So today what we do is we take on silence and solitude, silence and solitude. We live in a loud world. I don't know if anyone will own up to this, but the average American, I couldn't believe it when I read it. The average American watches five hours and four minutes of television every day. Plus, takes in one hour and 39 minutes of content, internet, videos, social media, whatever, via their smartphone. So we are now at... About six and a half hours of screen time for the average American adult. This is not park your kid in front of uh, Netflix and just let uh, the TV be the babysitter. That happens. Not not in my house ever. (laughs) This is the average American adult spends a quarter of their time or more engaged with a screen. And the screens are shouting at us evermore. Silence terrifies us. Being alone is a fear. How many people, uh, you can put your hand up if you're brave. How many people in here have ever turned the TV on just to have some noise on in the background? Listen to the radio just to have some noise in the background. We had visitors in this last week. I know you're surprised to hear that, but we had visitors here for the last week and it was quiet I was doing dishes or making breakfast or something and this discussion broke out between a couple different people is, how is it so quiet in here? And before long, um, you know, Wake Me Up Before You Go Go, that song was like playing, and it, you know, it's like 8 30 in the morning. And I'm like, what, what purpose does this serve? But, but for several people in the house, it was like, it's too quiet, and it's a little weird. So let's just turn on some noise just so we can have something going on. And that's not rare. We're afraid of being quiet. We're afraid of the silence. We're afraid of not being efficient, and having something else on in the background actually gives us this uh, this illusion of multitasking is happening. Well, I'm getting my news and eating my breakfast, so I'm like I feel better about myself. I was on a, a, a small road trip with a, a group of folks from this area. We're going to Cleveland for a concert, and I'm driving, so I'm driving. And there's three other people in the car. And at one point I looked up in the rearview mirror and one is on a phone and the one in the front yard or in the front uh, seat is on the phone. And then actually someone is in the back seat on a full laptop typing away. And I'm like, we have two hours collectively to like be friends and enjoy this adventure. And, and nobody could put a screen away. In fact, people brought extra screens to make sure they got some work done on the way. And I thought, this is super Interesting. That we cannot tear ourselves away from noise and distraction. We can't handle the idea that it might be quiet in the car. I've had half a dozen people at minimum ask me why I don't have music on in the car when they get in to ride with me somewhere. It's so quiet in here. Isn't this awkward? Don't you ever listen to anything? Like, well, yeah, but you're in the car. So I figured we should, you know, like interact. (laughs) Well, yeah, I, oh, yeah, anyway. And then within like 20 seconds, they'll be like, well, I just heard this new song. Let me play it for you on my phone. And the silence is gone because, God forbid, we should have a conversation or, even worse, be alone with our thoughts. We are overstimulated, we are overactive, and we are afraid of what we might actually hear if we were quiet. Jesus embraced silence and solitude. It says in Luke that Jesus would often slip away to the wilderness to pray, often slip away to the wilderness to pray, even if you and I slipped away to the wilderness to pray, There'd be a a little smartphone in your pocket, a 21st century computer that would buzz and beep every time someone called or texted or tweeted at you. So even slipping away to the wilderness by ourselves doesn't work these days because we're so connected to the noise. So the question today is, how do we embrace and even enjoy silence? And the question we begin with is, when was the last time that you were truly alone in silence. No book, no devotional, no noise, no screen, no distraction. For a lot of people in the room, it will be hard to think of the last time that we were truly alone in silence. Matthew chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held John to be a prophet. When Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask prompted by her mother she said give me the head of john the baptist here on a platter and the king was sorry but because of his oaths and his guests he commanded it to be given and so he sent and had john beheaded in the prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother and his disciples came and took the body and buried it and they went and told jesus now when jesus heard this he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. When the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had a compassion on them and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, when it was evening, the crowds came to him and they said, the disciples said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. So they said to him, we only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. He broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples. And he, the disciples then gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men Besides the women and the children. Verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. And go before him to the other side where he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds. He went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came he was there. Alone. When we look at the life of Jesus. We see that the response to distress. For him is first and foremost silence and solitude jesus encounters what has to be a devastating personal loss and he escapes by himself our most common practice in distress is distraction when we're stressed we actually engage in greater activity because the fear is that without distraction we might have to feel the full weight of the emotion that we carry we even give advice to hurting people not to be alone And yet when you ask people who have grieved, what was maybe the most healing part of your grieving process, of your mourning process, what was, what was it? While they will say most often that it was nice and they appreciated all of the visitors and the well-wishers and the people to keep them company. Most often the greatest healing happens in silence. When we're forced to sit and embrace loss or embrace pain. Silence and solitude in the quiet and the alone The void of loneliness we feel when we allow ourselves to be truly alone with our thoughts is real. There's a reason people don't like to be silent and practice solitude. Because alone with our thoughts, there's a real void of loneliness that creeps in. And it's one that can only be filled by God. And so where you and I are guilty is that we look for shortcuts to fill that void again. Because waiting in the wilderness, waiting upon the Lord... And that can get lonely. And so what we do is we fill it with distraction, with the same thing that everyone else in the world would fill it with. In verse 14, it says, people follow Jesus. This great crowd comes with him. And Jesus' response is interesting to me because I don't know if, if my best friend had just been beheaded and that news had been delivered to me. I don't know that I'd really wanted to deal with a big crowd. I would have probably been bitter and dismissive if I'm honest. It says that Jesus felt a love for them. Jesus had compassion upon them. Jesus said, bring them to me, and he healed their sick. Having just lost his friend to a gruesome killing, Jesus finds silence and solitude. And perhaps... We would acknowledge that the Spirit is part of this because Jesus is in tune with the Holy Spirit. And yet, perhaps in the silence and the solitude, there is an increased capacity for compassion as well. For us, the pace of modern life does not allow us to sit and process and reorder our perspectives. Major job shifts, major relational issues, major interpersonal conflict, problems with our children, problems with our parents illness. These things all show up in our lives, and our lives are lived at such an incredible pace that we never have time to sit and simply be. And as we are quiet at the foot of the Lord, as we're quiet in the silence and the solitude with God, what God so often does is takes that moment to reorder our perspective, to give us a new perspective, and allow us to see our situation for what it really is, as opposed to the thing that we've made it in the busyness. We are undergoing a screen invasion. You cannot buy a new car that doesn't have a glowing screen in it. I found the button in my wife's car, finally, after 18 months that turns the screen off. It's a, it says DISP, because DISP is totally how you should shorten display, right? <laughs> but if you hit the DISP button, everything goes dark. And just for a moment, there's not a screen shouting at me, this is the song that's playing, this is where you're going, this is what could be happening. Hey, are your tires inflated? What are you thinking about? It's maddening. We are a family of four, we have eight different screens that have to be plugged in and recharged. I don't even know. How is this possible? I have my phone, and then you have to have a tablet, but you have a laptop too, and the kids have to have a tablet because they can't share a tablet, and then, so you have 48 different tablets, and well, we bought them, on, they're refurbished, and they're the cheap ones, and they break often, but still, if I really do the math at night, I'm walking around, I'm like, I don't know if we have enough outlets in the whole house, and everywhere you turn, what that means is not that screens are a bad thing, right? It's not that they don't actually increase your productivity or increase your connectivity. It's not that they don't give you access to a world of knowledge. All those things can be true. And yet we watch, and even my own children, their imaginations do this, because the opportunity for them to engage with a screen does that. Why don't you go play outside? Well, there's this video about being outside I'd rather watch right now, <laughs> which is how it works. Introverts in the room are right now, you know, vociferously shouting somewhere within them because they're introverts. See? Silence! Solitude, we should all be alone and never should talk to me. Feels good to be affirmed, doesn't it, introverts? And yet, it's possible to take the concept too far. See, the example of Jesus is not an invitation to inaction. If we take the concept too far, then we have an invitation to inaction, and that's not what's happening here. Jesus doesn't take an invitation to inattention. He gets away purposefully. Jesus, actually in verse 15, gets presented with the chance for more solitude and silence. The disciples say, Jesus, send them away. We can't feed them. To which Jesus could naturally go, great idea, guys. Release them to go find their dinner. Instead, he dips back into the well of compassion. He says, no, let's do this together. So as Jesus found strength in the solitude and the silence, yeah, I'd say he had. But as he made it an idol, No. See, what's countercultural and counterintuitive is that the more time we spend in solitude and in silence, the better we're able to connect with others. As, a, as an experiment of sorts and just sort of a life preservation technique, I've spent the last two minutes off all social media. So I have, um, I'm not on Facebook anyway, um, so you can always find me on Facebook via my wife and she'll appreciate that. But um, I just don't do it. But I have Twitter. And I actually enjoy it. It's, my, it's where I get news. It's where I, it's where I kind of curate life and, and, and sink in. And I connect with people there. But for over two months now, I haven't been on Twitter. And the counterintuitive truth is while some people said, well, if you're not on Twitter, then how will you relate to like, you know, how can you communicate with people in these disparate worlds? And I've, I've actually seen and experienced that two months off of social media has actually given me greater connectivity with the people around me. Because it's a false connectivity To read about someone's life and feel like you know them a little bit better. It's a false connectivity to click a like button or comment, hey, you look beautiful in that picture. That's not relationship. That's this instant gratification treadmill that we're on that isn't actually deepening anything. And so the counterintuitive truth is that silence and solitude can actually drive you to greater connectivity if you'll allow it. You know people whose phone is constantly needing to be charged? You know these people in the world whose phones are always at like eight percent? can i borrow your charger do you have an outlet that's a lot of us we just go all the time we're never fully charged and therefore we're never fully useful we're always looking to replug just for a minute just give me a sip of some more energy we're constantly looking for a a hit of caffeine or a, a power nap whatever it is to get me through five more minutes that's not healthy balance the same can be said of the inverse, though it's no healthier to leave the phone plugged in all day and never take it with you, to never use it, and to have it always charging. My grandparents, uh, I have two grandparents in their uh, 90s, and they have a cell phone. And the great family joke is, um, we don't know why they have a cell phone, because it's always plugged in in their kitchen next to their landline. <laughs> why didn't you call me from the cell phone? Well, we don't take it anywhere. We leave it plugged in. It's got to stay charged. like well that that defeats the purpose of having it doesn't it well that's not the point we have one so you can get off my back right that's how (laughs) it's told to us but that's not what your life is for either like neither is your life designed to be totally on empty all the time and always needing a sip so you could be useful any more than it's designed to be plugged in and left on the counter because then it's not fulfilling its purpose there either hoarding your impact on the world doesn't work because you can't use yesterday's hours There is a value in silence and solitude as seen in scripture, which is this, that appropriate time in silence and solitude leads to maximum impact with others. When we do what we're called to do, when we follow the way of Jesus and we actually steal away and spend proper time alone with God, which sounds easy on one level and terrifying and difficult on another, we actually have greater impact with others. Jesus' silent recharge leads to energetic ministry. His time alone leads to time with people. In verse 18, he says, bring them here to me. Bring them to me. He's not like running from people and they're chasing him down and he's, he's reluctantly doing ministry. He says, bring them to me. He uses a charged battery to bless the world around him. And he feeds thousands, which sounds exhausting to me. Some of you in this room feed a toddler, and you're like, we need a vacation, right? So what happens next? Right in verse 22 and 23, which we read, it said, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boats and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he dismissed them, he went on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. Immediately, following ministry, he dismisses. And he sends the disciples on to the next stop which is strategic thinking on Jesus's part because they're annoying and they're just going to keep asking him questions and wondering how this miracle happened. And so he says, go, you go. And as soon as they're on the boat going the other way, he's like, finally. And Jesus goes on the mountain alone and prays. See, silence and solitude are for you, but they are not about you. So what this isn't, J.I. Packer would say, we have to be careful not to seek the practices of silence that were popularized by Eastern mystics. And integrated into Christianity by Gnostics and Neoplatonist Christian offshoots. What he's saying is early in Christianity, people took Easternism and they blended it with Christianity. And what they found was what we would commonly see uh, people who practice uh, yoga as a religion these days. That emptying myself of all things and being totally alone with um, the Zen of the universe is the way to peace. And Packer, among others, would say this is not the Christian idea. Christian idea is never about totally emptying yourself so as to find perfect peace. That's Buddhism. It's something different. It's about setting yourself and your agenda aside so as to be fully present with God, not fully emptied. This is not an appeal to emptying ourselves in non-cognitive closeness. Um, You can do that. That's not this. I like yoga. But Jesus isn't in Lycra on a mat on the mountaintop. It says Jesus steals alone to be with his Father. Jesus steals alone to pray. Jesus steals alone into the presence of the Lord. The appeal for solitude and silence is a, an appeal to break from the constant stimulus and activity of life. The constant stimulus and activity of life. Because even when we are inactive, we are no less stimulated by the world around us because how do we recreate so often i need a break let's go to the movies and get blasted by 130 decibels of surround sound with computer generated war happening on the giant 1000 foot screen and that's that's relaxing and it's wild stimulation the appeal for silence and solitude is to break from constant stimulus and activity. And the reason we have constant stimulus and activity is because we deep down feel the need to control our surroundings. And we feel the need to control our surroundings in order to drown out the unrest in our hearts. We feel the need to convince ourselves that we have this thing under control, that we have the cat by the tail, that we're not kind of flailing at life, that we're not sort of losing our grip and so rather than face emptiness or anger or frustration or loneliness or hurt head-on we decide to distract it away instead of sitting in front of it with jesus we sit in front of a screen and hope that it just kind of gets buried and everyone knows that you know when you take all your pain and your hurt and your frustration and your anxiety and your loneliness and you press it into a little ball and put it in the pit of your stomach everybody knows that's super healthy right Like it doesn't take a genius to say, wait, 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 we've heard that story before. Even people who don't know anything know that's a bad idea. And while we don't find ourselves doing this, sometimes doing this is just the same. You ever see an older couple sitting on the porch on like a swing, one of those rocking swings, just holding hands, staring at nothing? And the younger you are, the more you wonder what in the world they're doing. And the older you get, the more you say, yep, they get it. The more mature a relationship gets, the more comfortable the people in the relationship are to sit in silence. That's why first dates are awkward, terrible, small talk. And why seasoned couples of 50 and 60 and 70 years can sit on the porch for hours and not say a word and feel totally secure in the other one's presence because they know what real love is they know what true relationship is and they're no longer trying to win approval or distract themselves away they've just they've dealt with that and they're they're okay to be silent together i wonder if it's the same with our relationship with god But the more mature our relationship with God becomes, the more we look forward to sitting in silence with him. Should he have something to say? Great. Should he not? That's okay. But sometimes there's value in being together and being quiet. There's something restorative about that. There's something restorative about relational solitude and silence. I will say that after um, our parade of visitors leaves one at a time, my wife and I often find ourselves in a room silent together. And we say, yeah, this feels better. We love our visitors. But there's something restorative about just being in the room quiet together. And so we have to let Jesus guide us in this. As we look at the totality of Scripture, you can see, when did Jesus seek solitude? Well, he did it when he was starting something, before he started his ministry. He did it when he was finishing something, like we saw in the narrative we read here. He did it when he was grieving. He sought it when he was weary. He sought it when he was troubled. Well, troubled, you say, okay, but in what sense? When he was spiritually troubled, he sought solitude and silence. When he was physically troubled, he sought solitude and silence. When he was emotionally or mentally troubled, solitude and silence. Okay, but where? Jesus sought solitude in the desert, in the garden, in a boat, on a mountain. Which is to say, everywhere. In every season, in every emotional state. In every phase of life, every project start, mini, middle, beginning, end, doesn't matter. So what would we say about us? What would that look like? Where do you seek silence? In the corner of your basement, in your car, in the parking lot before you go into work, in a walk in the woods. How do we start to follow God in this countercultural activity or even inactivity? starts with making time. Which is what we're really, really bad at. Because the more productive we get, the more multitasking we do, somehow the less time we have free. Have you noticed this? Psalm 65 says, silence is praise to you, O Lord. And then Psalm 62 says, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Isaiah 30 15 isn't on the screens, but listen. Let these words just soak in. It says, in returning and in rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. See, ultimately, the lesson of silence and solitude is that in rest you were saved, that no amount of activity saved you, no number of great deeds got you across the finish line of faith. In rest, you were saved. In our inactivity, we are no less saved. In our inability, we are no less righteous. So a willingness to sit before God in silence and solitude is a rhythmic reminder that he is ultimately in control which leaves unspoken the other truth in that, is that a willingness to sit in silence and solitude before God is the admission that I am not in control. That no matter how many screens or devices or accounts or distractions I can um, come up with in my life, none of them make me more in control. In silence... The invitation is to submit to the roar of the lion of Judah and say, Lord, I am willing to take the salvation you offer, even though I have nothing to offer you. In solitude, we then rejoin our souls to the lamb that was slain. That though he was tortured, though he was taken to the cross and crucified on our behalf, did not protest. It is in our silence that we hear the silence of Christ on the cross, willing to take the pain of our sin. Our moment of inactivity when our hearts are right is our way of saying that for God alone, my soul waits in silence that in my rest, he saves and restores me. And so the question this week is how can you live counter to culture in silence and solitude? Where might you find it? And in doing so, where might you find God in a new way? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I confess to living a life of distraction, which is really a life of compulsion. God, that I am uh, not so great in the silence. Yet, Father, I'd also, in looking back, have to admit that some of the times of greatest clarity about the purpose that you have for my life have been in solitude, in the quiet of my own heart and my own soul. Father, I know that's true of others in this room. I know that we, as a community, because we are part of this culture, I know we struggle to find space. That sitting down to do a devotional in the morning is hard enough, much less finding five or ten more minutes to put the devotional aside and just be in your presence. And yet, Father, you've called us to this countercultural living, to this way of life that is the way to life. So I pray that we will not dismiss it as something that is fanciful or too nuanced for us. I pray that we will not dismiss it because we have some circumstance that makes us ineligible Father, I pray that each heart here would be uh, convicted and committed to finding you in a new way, to finding you in silence and in solitude. And then, God, I selfishly pray that in those moments, in these early days, as we try to uh, undo the impact of culture and to refine the rhythm and the balance that we see in Jesus, God, I pray that we would have early victory in that we would have early moments of clarity and joy, that we would have early moments of connection with you and with others. So Father, as we prepare to sing, to be anything but quiet, I pray that you would set our hearts aside and you would allow us in the words that we sing in the meditations of our hearts to see the value a Monday or a Wednesday or a Thursday at 5 a.m. about finding space in the silence for you. Father, it is for you that our hearts wait in silence. Let that be true of us. In Jesus' name, amen.